Bill on his exam before the Theological Examining Committee of the Tennessee Valley Presbytery, and if that doesn't sound overwhelming to you, then you don't understand. That is fairly overwhelming. And he was approved unanimously, with no questions being asked further uh, on the floor of the presbytery, and that is, that is somewhat unique. And that was followed by applause on the part of the presbytery. So you can be justly proud of the wonderful job uh, that he did. And Lord willing, um, he will begin to fill this pulpit on March the 8th. So I am going to be with you for seven more weeks and um, have wrestled long and hard on what I wanted to do for those seven weeks and I believe, have been led by the Lord to suggest that we look together during these next seven weeks at the last chapter and a half of the Gospel of Luke. So today we'll be looking at uh, Luke chapter 23 and verses 32 through 43. And as we look at those verses, we're going to also make frequent reference uh, to Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. So pray with me. Father, as we now come into your presence and as we open together your word, may the Holy Spirit who inspired these scriptures now illuminate our minds and our hearts and may we see Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Let me read for you Luke 23. Beginning somewhat awkwardly, I realize, but we'll set the stage here in just a moment. But let me begin with verse 32. Luke 23 and verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to, put, to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucif they, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the chosen of God if he is the Christ of God, if he is his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today, 
you will be with me in paradise. Now, as I suggested, before we look at these verses, let me just take a moment to, to set the stage. Look back at Luke chapter 22 and verse 6. Luke 22 and verse 6. Jesus is on trial, on trial for his life. And here you find his judges asking him, are you the Christ? Now, it's a terribly significant question because they understand, the, these teachers of the Jews, they correctly understand that according to their scriptures, the long-promised Messiah will also be their long-awaited king. So are you the Messiah? Are you our long-awaited king? Jesus' answer somewhat surprising. He doesn't answer their question directly. Jesus says to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, if I ask you questions concerning what you believe, what you believe about me, if I ask you those kinds of questions, you will not answer. Now look at verse 70 of chapter 22. Now the, now the judges ask a second question. Are you, now look at the language and note it carefully. Are you the son of God? Now, that wording, that, that wording is, is terribly significant because you have to remember all Israelites considered themselves to be sons of God. I mean, after all, the Lord himself calls the people of Israel his firstborn son. All Israelites considered themselves in the privileged position of a firstborn, the firstborn sons of God. But the judges, look at it. Judges aren't asking Jesus if he is a son of God. They're asking, are you the unique son of God? And again, Jesus' answer is not maybe what we expect. Jesus answers by saying, you say that I am. Now, look at chapter 23, verse 3. Now he stands before Pilate, the Roman governor, and Pilate asks, so, are you the king of the Jews? And again, Jesus answers, you have said so. I believe Jesus answers as he does, because if you look back at chapter 22, verse 67, in the light of chapter 22, verse 67, I believe Jesus answers the way he does, because he knows their, their minds are already made up. They've already decided. I mean, they're not asking honest questions. They've already decided that he's neither the, the Christ nor the, the unique son of God or, nor, the, nor the king of the Jews. I mean, these people know what Jesus taught openly, publicly, from house to house in the temple itself. His judges know that Jesus claims 
to be not simply a son of God, but the son of God. In fact, he claims to be the great I am. And Pilate, even Pilate, Pilate's been told that Jesus' followers say that he is the long-promised Messiah. That is, in our Greek New Testament, the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And furthermore, Pilate's been informed. He knows what the Jews believe. He knows that the Jews believe that their long-promised Messiah will be the king who will lead them to victory over their oppressors, who are, of course, Rome, the very government that Pilate represents. Now, as you read in all the Gospels, it's, it's always interesting, isn't it? I, I think you've noticed this, that, that Pilate just never seems to be fully convinced that Jesus is guilty of a capital offense. He repeatedly tries to find ways not to have him put to death. I mean, even look at chapter 23, verse 2, because this is staggering. I mean, even when Pilate is told by the religious leaders, you see this, Jesus? He misleads the nations. He forbids the people to pay taxes. And he claims to be the Christ that is the king of the Jews, not Caesar. He claims to be the king of the Jews. So, so how could Pilate ignore all that? Well, he ignores all that because it's just a bunch of religious nonsense. It's just a bunch of religious nonsense as far as Pilate is concerned. Of course, as you know, Pilate eventually caves into political pressure. I mean, for example, in John's Gospel, in John's gospel, he's warned. He's warned by the religious leaders. If you release Jesus, then you are no friend of Caesar. Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews, not Caesar. You release him, you are no friend of Caesar's. Well, that's a pretty significant accusation. But for Pilate, it just appears that to Pilate, all of this is just sheer nonsense. And then that final time, that, that Pilate brings Jesus to stand before the people. I mean, Jesus is standing there. He's wearing clothes that are probably blood-stained. Uh, he's been beaten. There's probably spit running down his garments. He's probably still wearing a crown of thorns upon his head. And, Jesus, and, and Pilate, for the sole purpose of mocking Jesus and mocking the people, I mean, he points to Jesus and he says to the crowd, Behold your king. And how does the mob respond? How does this Jewish mob respond? They respond by declaring, We have no king but Caesar. Well, that... That's just mind-boggling. These people despise their Roman overseers. But their hatred of Jesus, their hatred of Jesus, 
no matter how much they might have sung his praises just a few days earlier. Now their hatred of Jesus is so great that they are ready to claim Caesar as their king. And the reason they, they hate Jesus, at least in part, is because he has so disillusioned them. He's supposed to be their Messiah. He's supposed to be their king. He's supposed to drive out the Romans and reestablish the Davidic kingdom. So it's in light of the people's hostility and their suggestion that Pilate releases Jesus. He's no friend of Caesar's. That Pilate in chapter 23, verse 38, he hands Jesus over to his soldiers to be crucified. And then I suggest to you, in further humiliation of both Jesus and the Jews, Pilate orders that a, an inscription be placed on the cross above Jesus' head that reads this, this man hanging here. And you need to understand, no matter how many paintings you've seen, this Jesus hanging here naked with the blood running down from his hands and his feet and his head scarred if the crown of thorns is there or not, blood running down his, this, Pilate says, this is your king. This is the king of the Jews. See him hanging there? Nails piercing his hands and feet. Who do you believe him to be? You believe what the Gospels tell you about who he is and what he said and what he did and why he came? Do you believe the one hanging there, overwhelmed by the government of Rome, despised by the Jews, do you believe that he is your Lord and King? You believe he is God come in human flesh, the sinless one, come to take upon himself the rags of your sins and then suffer in your place the penalty for your transgressions, then to rise physically from the dead on the third day, and then 40 days later to return to his father's right hand where he now sovereignly reigns over this world and all the, the details of your life and will one day come again come again to turn all things right side up. You believe and understand this is who he is. And this is what he has done, is doing, and will do. So that by grace through faith in him as Savior and Lord, you might know, no matter what the guilt is that rests upon your heart, that you might know the penalty for that guilt, the penalty for your sins has been paid and you are now and forevermore numbered among the righteous. You are numbered among the righteous. You were declared a citizen of heaven. You are a member of the royal family. You are a chosen 
servant of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And furthermore, let me add this. Do you understand that if you don't believe those things, if you reject him as the great I am, if you reject him as Savior, Lord, and King, to do so is to choose death, a living and an eternal separation from the one by whom and for whom you were made. You understand what's at stake here? If you do, if you do believe that he is who he claims to be, if your life and your words bear evidence that this is what you know and believe with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind, of course, it's because God has graciously enabled you to believe the testimony of Scripture concerning who Jesus is and what he has, is, and, and will accomplish. So in the light of all of that, look at Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. And as I said, as we do so, we're going to remember Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 52 and 53, a prophecy given 700 years before Jesus' crucifixion. Now, look at chapter 23, verse 32. Here Jesus is judged by the authorities to be a common criminal deserving death by crucifixion alongside two, other, two others who are, who are guilty of, of, of capital offenses. In Isaiah 53, 12, you may just want to mark these. You may not want to keep flipping back and forth. But in Isaiah 53, 12, the prophet tells you 700 years earlier, he tells you Jesus will be numbered among the transgressors. Well, clearly the, the transgressors among whom Jesus is numbered are these two criminals. But not just these two criminals. The transgressors among whom Jesus is numbered are you and me. We're transgressors. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So see him hanging there? In Isaiah 53 and verse 4, 700 years earlier, the prophet tells you Jesus will be smitten. He will be afflicted. He will be pierced. He will be crushed. He will be punished. He will be wounded because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He will be oppressed. He will be afflicted. And he will, like a lamb, be led to the slaughter. See him hanging there? As he hangs there, listen. Listen in Luke 23, 34. Listen as he hangs there 
suffering physically and spiritually. Listen, what's he doing? He's asking, what would you be doing at that moment? I wouldn't want anybody to be reading my lips at that moment. But what is Jesus doing? He's asking the Father to forgive his executioners who don't know what they're doing. So who is it you can't forgive? Shame on you. There hangs Jesus, suffering more horribly than any of us can possibly imagine. Not just physically, but spiritually. And the words of his lips are a prayer to the Father to forgive his executioners because they don't know what they're doing. But now, you see him praying? You see him praying that prayer? You understand he's also praying for you? Because it's for your sins that he's being executed. You see him praying for you? As he hangs there in payment for your transgressions. See him hanging there? The Jews expected their Messiah to defeat their enemies, and he is defeating their enemies. The trouble is, they don't know who their enemy is. The enemy he is defeating is far worse than Rome. He's defeating sin and death and the grave and all the powers of hell because he's come to deliver you from sin's curse and sin's power. See him hanging there? Look at verses 35 through 39. The rulers scoff. The soldiers mock while they amuse themselves by gambling for his garments. And at first, as we learn in Matthew's gospel, at first, as Matthew tells us, both of the criminals, both of them, are reviling him. Isaiah tells you 700 years earlier, Isaiah tells you this is to be expected. The prophet tells you in Isaiah 52 verse 14 that the people will find him, the people will find Jesus appalling. They will find his form marred beyond human likeness. Isaiah says in 53 verse 2 that he will be horribly unattractive. That he will lack in the eyes of the people both majesty and beauty. Now think about this. Look at 23 verse 35. As the rulers scoff, they're saying more than they know. 
It's always an interesting phenomena in Scripture. They're saying more than they know. They're scoffing. They, they, they scoffingly refer to him as, as the Messiah, as the chosen of God. And that's who he is. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the, the anointed one, the, the chosen one of God. It's exactly what the prophet tells us in Isaiah 42.1. In Isaiah 42.1, the Lord, the Lord calls upon you to behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. See him hanging there? I mean, he could have called 10,000 angels. And I assure you, I would have called upon those 10,000 angels if I had that authority. He did. He could have called 10,000 angels to fight on his behalf. But the prophet tells you in Isaiah 53, 7, that he will not open his mouth in protest. In Isaiah, and Luke, I'm sorry, in Luke 23, verse 36, as the soldiers mock him, they also say more than they know. They mockingly call him the king of the Jews. The sign above his head publicly declares, this is the king of the Jews, and that is exactly who he is. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Look at Isaiah 23. I'm sorry. Luke, just go with what I mean and not with what I say. Look at Luke 23 and verse 39. Luke 23 and verse 39. One of the two criminals asks desperately, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Well, he is the Christ. He is the Savior. The one who has come to save us. The one who has come to seek and to save that. And those who are lost. That's why he's hanging there. He's dying to save you from having to pay the penalty for your sins. The prophet says in Isaiah 53, 11, By his knowledge, that is by knowledge of him, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Now, interestingly, in Isaiah 53, 1, the prophet asks, who believes anything we have to say? Who has believed what they've heard from us? I mean, if you were standing there... Perhaps you'd look around and you'd say, doesn't anybody here understand? Doesn't anyone believe? Doesn't anyone recognize the truth? Doesn't anyone realize who is, who he is and why he is dying? I remember when I saw the passion of the Christ in the theater with the opening scene where Jesus gets up as a snake crawls by. He rises from prayer and he stomps the head of the serpent beneath his foot. I, I wanted to stand up in the theater and go, let me explain that to you. Do you know what's going on here? Well, if you had stood there, perhaps you would have looked around and said, doesn't anybody get it? 
Well, there is one. Look at 2340. By God's grace, the heart and mind of one of the two criminals is changed. And now we find him rebuking the other criminal by asking him, don't you fear God? Who's he talking? He's talking about Jesus. Because he goes on to say, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? Think about that. The same sentence of condemnation. The same judgment as what? The same judgment as who? The same judgment. The same judgment of condemnation being poured out on the one hanging next to him. Who hangs there. I know how hard this is. But he hangs there condemned by the father. The father turning for a moment in time. The father turning his back upon his son. Because he's bearing your sins, my sins. He's paying the penalty for our transgressions. This poor man, he now so wonderfully confesses we are punished justly, we're getting the due reward of our deeds, but this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And the prophet tells you in Isaiah 53, 9, that he will suffer all of these things despite the fact that he has done no violence, that he has never, ever spoken deceitfully. follow me but he is suffering justly he is suffering justly not because of anything he has ever done but because of all that we have done he's taken upon himself sins. Now look at 23 verse 42. This wonderfully, graciously enlightened prisoner now turns to Jesus and he pleads, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Your kingdom. I acknowledge you to be king. And in verse 43, Jesus assures him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. Paradise is a, one of several expressions used for God's abode. And that day, that very day, this dear man who, who we get to meet one day, 
I have no idea what his name was or is or may have been changed to be. But this dear man that very day accompanied Jesus into paradise because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See him hanging there? He's the Christ. He's the chosen one. He's the king. He's the savior. He's God come in human flesh. He is the innocent one who became sin for you so that you might be numbered among the righteous. He is the king who opens the door to paradise for a common criminal and for you and for me. Now listen, you see him hanging there? Surely no one would have the gall at this particular moment to stand up and say, well, I would never join with those sneering, mocking, and insulting Jesus. But you have. You've been part of that mob. You've been part of that crowd. And you still are. Unless... By God's grace, through faith, you embrace Jesus as your Savior, Lord, and King and find yourself eager, eager, find yourself eager. The two things go hand in hand, believing and being eager. Find yourself eager to do those good works which he has prepared in advance for you to do. By God's grace, through faith, you find yourself Radically committed to him, to the Christ, to the chosen one, to the king, to the savior, to God come in human flesh, to the innocent one, to the opener of paradise, to the way, the truth, and the life. And when God, and when by God's grace, through faith you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart it is true. Then you rise up to serve him joyfully and wholeheartedly. You cannot confess these things to be true and not joyfully seek to serve him. Those two things cannot be that they can't be put together. Believing in him and serving him, they go together. I know, I know, I know. I know, I understand. As Protestants, you know, we don't want to talk about works because we're all saved by grace. Well, we are saved by grace. And why are we saved by grace? To do those good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do. You're not saved by doing good works, but those do good works are the evidence of the fact that you've been saved. So by God's grace, you exercise this faith. You rise up to serve him. And you do so knowing that both now and forevermore, that you're forgiven, you're delivered from the dominion of darkness, you are a citizen of the kingdom of light, you are a member of the royal family. And therefore, you are a willing and eager servant of your Lord and King.
See him hanging there? He dies that you might live. He dies that you might live. That by his enabling strength you might daily live a life before others. That shows by your words, deeds, and even your attitudes that you know and believe that he is your savior, your creator, your God, your Lord and King. And therefore, you are in love with him. In love with him both now and forevermore. And he is the one that you love with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind. Let's pray. Father, teach us to see Jesus hanging there for us, our substitute, the perfect Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Oh Lord, may we understand who he is, what he has done, is doing, and will do so that we might, by your enabling grace and by your enabling power, that we might serve you all our days. And then, and then, if you have not first returned, then to find the gates of paradise wide open to us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King, and all God's people said.